And we are going to be in Mark chapter 11. And I figure if we can do Christmas in July, we can do Palm Sunday in October. So that is what we are doing. We're going to start a new trend. Hashtag Palm Sunday in October. And I realize like eight of you know what hashtags are, but that's all right. Nine. Nine. Okay, nine. Uh, I barely know. I just, I just know people say that. Uh, let's read Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. God, give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts that would love what we see here in your word. Amen. So the tension has been building. We see in the gospel of Mark, especially, uh, you know, we've talked about how Mark is a little unique in the gospels and that it is very action-oriented. He just keeps moving from thing to thing to thing. And the tension has been building. And the, the, you think back to the beginning of Mark where the healing started happening and people wondering, who is this Jesus? What is he doing? And we've never heard anyone speak with the authority that he speaks with. We've never seen anyone exhibit the authority over demons and over illness the way that he does. So who is this Jesus? And then they start building and start wondering, wait, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one that we've been waiting for, the one who has come to deliver us? And then we see Mark transition, and, and finally it comes to a head where Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? What are they saying about me? And they say, well, some say you're a prophet, and, and others think you're Elijah, and, and we, we don't know. Or they, they say all kinds of things. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And from that point forward, Jesus says, you are right. And he says, if I am the Christ, then follow me. And he turns and he starts to tell them about what this road is going to take him on. The road that he is going on. The road back to Jerusalem. The road to suffering. He tells them that he will suffer. That he will be arrested and he will die. 
and he walks this road. And now we finally get to the place. As he's walking towards Jerusalem, bigger crowds are gathering with him as this news spreads about this Jesus that he is actually claiming to be the Messiah, that we think he is the one we've been waiting for. And the crowds start gathering more and more like a snowball rolling downhill. And as he gets closer and closer, he's healing people along the way, including Bartimaeus, who we talked about last week, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we see him healing them and and gathering all of this momentum as he heads into Jerusalem. There's no denying the energy that is in the air, the, the, the excitement that is happening. You think of it as they are walking in to Jerusalem. He has given people hope. He has fulfilled prophecies. And now he enters with this crowd. Is this the time? If he's the one, is this the time? What better time than that Passover for him to walk into Jerusalem and establish his kingdom? And it certainly seems that this is what they were thinking. As we see in verse 7, that they brought this colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And they are doing this because that is what you do with royalty. This idea of this donkey, which we don't typically see as a royal animal. And at that time, wouldn't have, but ancient times, it it was. Like now, horses had become more popular. But at the time, um, they would have looked back and seen that, that that this was a sign of, of royalty. And so they lay their cloaks on the donkey, and then they lay their cloaks before. You look back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This is what you do for royalty. This is a coronation. The entry of a king. But what kind of king? As they call out in verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna literally means save us, we pray. And so they're, they're literally yelling out as Jesus is walking in on this colt, being led by this colt with cloaks being laid down in front of him. They're crying out, save us, save us. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118, which says, save us, we pray, O Lord, which is Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And that, that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was, was typically given, uh, was said to pilgrims as they came to Jerusalem. But here they are saying it to Jesus, saying, you are blessed. You come in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. We pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. And they are chanting this over and over. If you can imagine what the scene would look like. And they didn't, we, we know that some of them would not have understood the depth of what they were saying. But even the ones who knew there was something more going on, something incredible going on, they only had a glimpse. They had a picture in their head that this is the king we have been waiting for, that he has come to deliver us. 
Look at the crowd with him. Look at the momentum. Look what's finally happening. Surely he will deliver us. But they have their own interpretations of what a kingdom is. And they have their own interpretations of what salvation would mean. He is a king. And for the first time in the Gospels, Jesus allows such a display of royalty. In fact, he ordains it. But he is not ushering in the kingdom that they expected. And he is a savior. He is a deliverer. He has come to deliver them from their oppressor, but from a much bigger enemy than they realized. They saw parts, but they didn't understand the whole. And when you think about it, that's what most of our culture here understands about Jesus. We do the same things. We, we understand that he rules in his kingdom, and we understand that he is a savior. And we fill in the blanks as to what we think that means. And so if you ask a lot of people in our culture, in the United States, and, and certainly in the Midwest, if you ask about Jesus and about his kingdom, they'd say, oh yeah, no, I know Jesus has a kingdom. It's It's heaven. And if you ask more questions, I would say that the majority of, of people in our country would say, yeah, like I know, I know about Jesus um, and, and, and he's supposed to rule over heaven. And when I get there, he will rule. But, but here I'm pretty much on my own. Here on, on this earth, this is, this is kind of my life and my territory. And if we said, well, has he come to save us? We say, yes. But I have my own interpretation of what that looks like. So I think, yes, he came to save us and forgive us for our sins, but he, but he really came to save people who, who do the best that they can and basically try to be good people. That's why even among people who identify as Christians, they will most often answer the question of who, does, who, who gets into heaven with some form of, well, those who do God's will or those who do good things. And so it doesn't take long to see how filling in the blanks is a, a dangerous thing. That we hear this one thing about Jesus, we see this one thing about him, and then we fill in the blanks with our definitions of what that looks like. And that's what the people here were doing. Their definition of what kingdom looked like. Their definition of what deliverance looked like. And I would ask as we look at this story, that you, if you've grown up in the church, that you have probably heard a million times before, are we doing the same thing? Like we, like them, tend to see the parts we want to see. And we miss out on the full picture of who Jesus is. This Jesus is the sovereign king who chooses suffering. He is the powerful king who exudes humility. And he is the popular king who stands alone. And we see that in this passage. He's the sovereign king who chooses suffering. Like it would be easy to see this, uh, see this as the culmination of random events and circumstances, kind of a coincidences or, or the perfect storm, so to speak. We often talk about historical events in, the, in that frame of reference and through that lens. We often say things like, if you were asked, like, okay, what was the cause of World War II? 
And you could point to a lot of different things and, and you say, well, this happened and this was the climate that was going on in, in Europe at the time and in Germany and this was the effects of World War I and this is what was happening in other parts and this is, this is what was going on in the United States at the time. And we would look at that and I remember learning about those things and saying like, okay, well, all of these pieces kind of fit together to make this, it's like this perfect storm. And, we, and you look at it and you say, well, all these variables had to collide at this same time for this to happen. And it would be easy to see this in kind of the same way. And there are certainly historians who do, and there are certainly people at the time who did. That Jesus just happens to ramp things up and end up in Jerusalem during the Passover. He just happened to have in these situations the unrest of the Jewish people against the Roman government and, and kind of the, the, the lack of settling there and, and some of the things that were going on that people were starting to ramp up their desire to see a Messiah. You could look at it from a historical point of view and look at that and say, well, that was just like the perfect storm. There's all these variables that like, came together in this one place to kind of make this happen. And that's, that's why they thought Jesus was the king. Except it wasn't coincidence. It wasn't a bunch of random variables all coming together. It was a perfect storm, to be sure. But this storm was planned with great detail from the beginning of time. This wasn't a spontaneous royal parade. It had been prophesied. Jesus tells His disciples go and you're going to find a colt and this is going to be the situation. The colt is going to be tied up and you're going to untie it. And then this guy is going to ask you, you know, what are you doing? And you're going to tell him that the Lord has need for it and he's going to let you go. And he tells them all these things, not just because he's predicting it, not just because he's saying like, hey, I'm coming up with this plan. So then you'll know that I'm in control of things. He's fulfilling prophecies in Genesis 49 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, comes in as royalty, and even has them go and untie the donkey's colt from the vine. In Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He even says this donkey has been unridden, which is what was fit for a king. The beast of burden who has been unburdened, except for the king. Every little detail down to he's going to be tied up and you're going to untie him. Why why do that? Why put that in there? There's so many of these prophecies that are fulfilled here and as we go through Holy Week and in the crucifixion. And, and what does that tell us? Why is that so important? It tells us that God is in complete control. 
that he knew from the beginning of time how this day would play out. This is not a reaction to what people are doing. It's not him just kind of capitalizing on the, the, the effects or on the culture or the climate of the time. From the beginning, God even ordered that the cult that Jesus would ride in on would be tied to a post. He's planned every detail. And we love that about God. We love that God is in control. We want to believe that God is in control. We, it's, in fact, it's one of the most common phrases we tell one another when we're struggling or when we're scared or anything like that. God is in control. God is in control. We say it so often that it just feels like it's almost empty sometimes. The way we say it just, just flows out so quickly. God is in control. And prophecies like this make us realize that he has planned every detail. But that sovereignty shows us that he has planned every detail, including his suffering. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He is so in control. He's saying to his disciples at this point, before all this happens, he says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay down my own life and the authority to take my life back up. Who says that? That is a level of sovereignty that we can't even grasp. But he lays it down of his own accord. And this isn't the way we would think of things. I don't know about you, but if I was in control of everything, if I was sovereign, my life would be super easy. By you. If you were completely in control of everything, you sovereignly could have your hand and plan out every detail. My life would be easy. My, my kids would be obedient all the time. Just be, yes, dad. No, dad. No, thank you, dad. You're the best dad. That's what my life would look like. Everyone, everyone would like me. Everyone would be happy to see me. All of my ideas would work out. Everything would be great. But my life doesn't look like that. And it didn't look like that for Jesus. See, my life doesn't look like that because I'm not in control. We say that to each other all the time. Like, God is in control. But we also say, hey, worry about the things you can control and, you know, leave the rest up to God. And we say things like that because we're like, look, we all understand that if you and I were in control, this isn't the way that it would be. That's kind of the implied statement of that. But what are we actually saying about who God is and about his control and about his character? Because if I was in control, these things wouldn't happen. And yet Jesus is in control, completely sovereign. Not one thing has come into being that didn't come into being through him. And he's going to be mocked and betrayed and arrested and beaten and killed. 
He's not an innocent martyr the way we think of it, the one that it was an injustice that this happened and he was a victim. He is not a victim. He laid down his life. He chose this path. He was the one who chose this. And if we could choose, that is not the path that we would walk. And this is so important. This is the picture. We say God is in control, but we need to round that out and make sure that we understand that what all that means. Because what we often fill in the blanks with is God is in control, therefore my life should be free of suffering. And we say that because if I was in control, that's what it would be like for me. So why didn't the life of Jesus look like that? It's kind of a simple answer, but it doesn't make it less true. His life didn't look like that because of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God shows his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, we have to confront this mentality, and we preach about it here quite a bit, but it's because we constantly need to be reminded. Do not mistake sovereignty with comfort. Do not not mistake God's control with personal earthly safety. Do not mistake trials for a lack of God's control or a lack of love. If you ask the question, why doesn't my life look like that with no trials, with no pain? It's because of his great love for you. Because he is not willing to sacrifice eternal joy for you at the altar of instant gratification. He will not do it. He is too good. He loves you too much. So if you look at this king, he walks into Jerusalem knowing every step. He does so willingly. He lays down his life of his own accord. No one takes it from him. Even the donkey being tied to a post is planned with intimate detail. And church, he is just as intentional with your life. Like it's easy to think like, oh, of course he planned all of that in detail because that was super important. Everybody in the world was going to need to know that. But my life, he just kind of lets it roll. And sometimes I feel like he's kind of forgotten about me. And then he runs back over and says, oh, I should probably take care of some things here. That's not what he does. The same detail that he gave to his entry into Jerusalem is the same detail that he has for your life. Where do I get that? Many places. Luke 12, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Look at what these say. That even a sparrow doesn't fall apart from him noticing. And you are so much more valuable. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. He knows you that specifically. In fact, he knows you that well and that specifically, not because he's gotten to know you over the years, but because he created you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. And even when you fall, even when you get out of step, even when you make terrible choices and go down bad paths, he does not leave you. He upholds you. It's his hand that upholds you. You won't be cast headlong. That's the kind of detail and attention God gives. And when we see that, then we can know and rest in that confidence. That Jesus knew the road that was in front of him and he walked it willingly for the joy set before him, for the glory of God and for your unending joy. And that is exactly how he walks the road that he has laid out for you. He walks it with you willingly, patiently for your unending joy and for the glory of God. So this sovereign king chooses suffering and this all-powerful king exudes humility. So even though a donkey was seen as a royal um, animal, a royal beast in ancient times, but even in that time it wasn't as much. It's still humble. And as Zacharias says, he is humble and mounted on the colt. And he enters not only humbly on the colt, but he doesn't enter with armies, with propaganda being shouted. He's not shouting to the crowd, riling them up, telling them about their oppressor and, and trying to rally more people. He, as by all accounts, is silent. And there may have been people looking there and saying, okay, well, if you are the Messiah, if you've come to deliver us, then you should probably get going. Like, let's rally the troops. Let's build some strength and some power. When are you going to strike fear into the hearts of people? When's that going to happen? And he will do that eventually. There will come a day. Because the same Jesus who enters Jerusalem riding on a colt will return riding a white horse with his head crowned and eyes like fire. Just listen to Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God." 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the power that's there. That's the fierceness that is coming. But on this day, that king will submit himself to the creation. He will be spit upon, mocked, and beaten by the very people he came to save. And he will take all of it. And his only response will be, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, many will mistake that for weakness. Many people at the time would mistake all of this for weakness. They would say things like, well, if you're the king of Jews, like save yourself. If you have all these armies of angels, then get yourself down from the cross and save all of us too at the same time. And we look at that and we say, well, how ridiculous. And yet, we feel that way a lot. Say, God, why don't you show your power? Why don't you do something about this situation? We actually find ourselves despising this about Jesus. You may say at that point, like, no, 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 I'm off that train. I don't despise that about Jesus. I don't mean despise as in hate. I mean despise as in we turn away from and we don't really want to take part in that. Think about it. What, what would you have done? Knowing that you have all of those legions of armies of angels at your, at your command. Knowing the injustice of what was taking place. How long would you last being spit upon, mocked, and beaten? Knowing that you had done nothing wrong, how long would you last? I mean, if it was an action movie, even us watching it would be waiting for the hero to finally lash out, to finally obliterate all of his enemies because we'd be sitting there saying, this is so unjust, this is so unfair. We'd be waiting for the hero to break free from his chains and to give everyone what was coming to them. And far lesser situations get met here with a lack of forgiveness on our parts. Far lesser offenses, where we are far less innocent, get met with things like, well, I, I deserve better. Don't you know what they did to me? That's just not right. That's unfair. That's unjust. I'm not going to be a doormat. I know I'm supposed to forgive and be kind and gracious, but I'm, I'm not going to be a doormat. Listen, by all accounts, by anybody of any human thought at all on the day that Jesus is crucified, he is the epitome of a doormat. But in reality, he was the door. He says in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Let me ask you, you see the humility of Jesus. We love the humility of Jesus, but we don't want to have any part of the humility of Jesus in our own lives. Are you willing 
to be a doormat at the foot of that door? Are you willing to allow God to use injustices and unfairness in your life to extol humility and kindness and mercy? Or do you want your status and your position? So often, people's hearts are softened to Christ, not by force, not by intellectual arguments, but by supernatural acts of humility and kindness. Acts the world might attribute as being a doormat, forgiving the unforgivable, mercy when the world demands justice or vengeance. This doesn't mean that we don't care about justice. It doesn't mean that we don't confront things like abortion or racial inequality or other forms of oppression and injustice. It means that we do it not from a place of self-service, fighting for my own rights, serving myself, but as a way of loving God and loving others. I care about justice as a way of serving my brothers and sisters. So if your view of justice has more to do with you than with others, then I would argue that that's less justice and more self-worship. The reality is that we are in our flesh wired to protect ourselves, serve ourselves, and most of our anger at injustice is actually angry defense of ourselves, of our own rights, and a disregard of others. And this is the opposite of Jesus who gives not a second thought to laying down not only his own rights, but his life. But that doesn't mean that the fierceness of the one who will ride in on the horse with flames in his eyes, it's not, that doesn't mean that that Jesus isn't here. He is there. But it's always on the behalf of others. Think of all the horrifyingly sacrilegious things that are said and done to Jesus, and not once does he respond in anger. Not once does he present a show of fierce power, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. You see it. When the Pharisees chide the woman who's, seen, who's making a scene at the feet of Jesus, when the children are held back from him, when the adulterous woman is about to be stoned, you see glimpses But even then, his humility and meekness make his power all the more awe-inspiring. See, if we believed, if we really believed that God was ultimately in control and that he was completely just, wouldn't that produce humility in us? But so often, in the face of trials, in the face of injustices, in the face of, of persecution, we get louder, not quieter. We panic more, not less. We spread fear, not trust. We do it politically and we do it personally. We do it publicly and we do it privately. We demonstrate through our actions and our reactions that we see humility as weakness. But actually it's trust. We often fight for our rights and get offended easily because we aren't going to be a doormat. Not because we are strong, but because we don't trust. Not because we care about justice, but because we care about ourselves. 
And we don't realize that the road he has marked out for us is to be walked in humility. And it's not a safe road. The road he has marked out for us is a road that would bring him the most glory and would end with us having the most possible joy. And that, by definition, will not be easy. But we walk it trusting him. If you believe that at some point every sin will be accounted for, including yours and mine, either in hell or on the cross, that should produce humility in us. It should produce humility in how we speak to our coworkers and our neighbors and our family members and people on Facebook and everywhere else in between. This is your king. He is humble and lowly in heart, and though you rebelled against him, and are deserving of death, he offers mercy and takes the punishment on himself. The one who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the door. Oh, that God would let me be a doormat leading up to him. Finally, the shortest one is he is the popular king who stands alone. Something really interesting about what happens here at the end of Mark's account. And it's, easy, it's easy to miss unless you're thinking about the other accounts. So like many other passages in this series, I've read the account of Mark and I go, okay, we're here. And I start quoting in my head passages. Oh yeah, I can't wait to talk about this. I can't wait to talk about this one. Only to realize, oh wait, that's Luke's account. Oh, wait, that's Matthew's account. Mark often has just a little different phrasing. But here he has a different situation. Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? I mean, think about Mark, who we've talked about as the author of action, who so often uses the word immediately he did this, immediately he did this. It's, it's at least twice in this very section. He describes action. He moves quickly from one event to another, even while Matthew or Luke are providing all this editorial comment and this background of other details. Mark's like, yep, this happened. Then he went and did this. Then he went and did this. And now here we have a pause. Like, think about this. Mark, who skips so much downtime, has this building and building and building and building to the temple. And it was late, so he called it a night. I think Mark is doing this intentionally. One, because I think that's what actually happened. You think about all the things that had happened that day, it likely was night. But Matthew and Luke both have him just, they just go right into telling the story of him going to the temple, but Mark doesn't. And Mark is communicating the calm before the storm. The Messiah, after all the crowds pressing in, shouting Hosanna, all the energy, all the building up, the picture that Mark paints is he walks into the temple alone at night and looks around. And then he withdraws. They see him gaining momentum. The people see that a crowd is building, but Jesus actually is standing alone. 
He's not surrounded by an army who will help him defeat the Romans. He's standing surrounded by a crowd who will cry out, crucify him. And to defeat the true enemy that needs defeating, he must go alone. He stands alone in the temple and he stands alone on the cross. And he does it so that we would never be alone. And because of that, our hope is in Christ alone. We say, yeah, I get that. But do we really? Think about all the other things that we place our hope in. I'm not even talking about the world, like worldly stuff. We can compare that all day long as we pursue riches and we pursue um, power and status and all those things. But even in the church, even when we are thinking, trying to think about things biblically, think about all of the things we put our hope in. We put our, our hope in, in things like church attendance and hoping like if we just get more people. Our issue is we just need more people to come to church. If we had more people coming to church, then, and then everything would be fine. Or if we had more politicians who shared our faith and shared our values on things, then we'd be fine. Like that's what we really need. But that's not where our hope is. It is in Christ alone. We may rejoice in those things, we may pray for those things, but we don't have our, place our hope in those things. And what's the difference? This is what's so important. Listen, I love that we have new people coming to our church. I want that to happen. I hope that as we proclaim the gospel that more people see lives that are changed and they come and they're part of it. We rejoice in that, but that's not where our hope is. And that's very important distinguishing Mark, because if your hope is in church attendance, then you will sacrifice even the gospel to get it. Whatever your hope is in, you will sacrifice all other things to pursue that. And if your hope is even in the church, even if you're thinking, well, we need to get more people in here, that's the answer, then you will sacrifice anything, even the gospel. And we will put our energy and our hope in attractive programs or invitations. The same thing happens in the political realm. If your hope is in a president or a political party, if you're thinking like, okay, what we need is, is this platform to be on, on display and we need everybody. If, if we had that, then we would be fine. Like our country is in trouble because we haven't had that and we need to get the right people in those offices. And if that is where your hope is, the hope for our world, then you will deny parts of your faith to secure a political platform. You'll do it. You, you can't resist doing it. We will sacrifice anything for the thing that we have hope in. I see it in parenting, even in my kids. If my hope, I say my hope is that my kids would know the gospel and know Jesus. Like that's what I want. That's why I say my hope is for them. But then when they start struggling with sin in their life and they keep butting up against the same wall and they keep going down the same path, at some point my true desires come out when I just say, all right, I've had it, that's enough. You're not doing that anymore. And all of a sudden I display that my real hope for them is that they would behave and not get into trouble and not make some mistake that would mess up the rest of their life. See, when push comes to shove, we see where our hope is on display. Listen, if you want to see revival in this country, it will not happen through a political platform. It won't. 
Like, by all means, vote and be thoughtful in the process, but think like followers of Jesus. I beg you. It will not happen through the platform. It will happen only in the lifting up of Jesus at all cost, even if it costs us an election. If we want to see revival in this church, it is not going to happen through creative programs or outreach strategies or more people, just more people attending the church. It is going to happen through the transformation of this body into the image of Christ. Last week was really encouraging to me. We offered prayer at the end of this service, and this church responded. And what was really beautiful was that so many of the prayers were prayers of confession or repentance, of crying out to God. That is what we need to do. A group of people who in humility that is born of being forgiven, redeemed, and renewed by Jesus shares that hope with others. That is our hope in Jesus. And he doesn't need armies with him. He is sufficient. He stands alone in the temple. He will stand alone at the cross, rejected by the very crowds that had just praised him. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone can take away the sins of the world. Christ alone can tear down the curtain that separates man from God. And that is where our hope is. The sovereign king who chooses suffering. The humble king who defeats sin and death. And the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Let's praise him together. Father, help us. Because we all struggle with putting our hope in these other things. And it is, can be so hard to discern when we are doing that and when we are just trying to fight injustice and when we are trying to, to lift up the values of the kingdom. It is sometimes really hard to discern the difference. But God, I pray you'd make it clear to us. I pray that we would constantly and consistently lift up the name of Jesus that our lives be marked by a growing humility, patience and kindness and joy, self-control and love, all of these things, God, that you are bearing in us. Please bring them, bring them out. Let the world see that. Let the world see you through us. Let us walk the road that you have given us in humility, trusting you. That there will come a day where all the wrongs will be righted. There will come a day where all suffering will end, but today, whatever road you have called us to walk, let us walk it into total humility and trust, proclaiming your goodness all the way. And let us find our hope only in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.